Welcome to this week's edition of the Green Majority Radio Program. Thank you so much for listening. We have a lot of fun this week. Just before we get started, of course, our usual reminder that if you can and are able and are willing and... uh are feeling good today. You can go ahead and become a Green Majority member, help us get the word out there and help us. Uh, what we're working on right now is actually we were looking to hire a marketing staff part-time to help get the show out there. So uh, you can uh, go ahead and retweet us. You can share our posts. That's a great way to help us out uh, if you're uh, not able to become a member. But if you are, this will help actually get a paid person to go and help promote the program and get it onto more radio stations, get more people listening uh, to our uh, fiery brand of truth here at the Green Majority. So uh Please uh, consider donating today. You can go to greenmajority.ca or go straight to the source if that's what you want to do and go to patron, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash greenmajority to become a member today. Enjoy the show. Welcome. You are listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM. I'm your host, Darren Kaster, and I am sitting in studio with Stephen Hostetter. How are you doing? And uh, we're going to uh, we're going to do a lot of politics. We've been we've been we've been pretty politics heavy, heavy recently, and I'm afraid I cannot offer you much relief, <laughs> uh, if only because uh, in addition to everything else, we have uh, two. Uh, I, I, I hesitate to, 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 to use violent imagery here. Funnels? Th- yes, I was going to say two cars racing together towards uh. each other on the highway. But okay, yes, let's, go, let's, let's stay away from the violent imagery. Yeah. <laughs> we'll say funnels. Uh, two, so the two big things obviously coming up that will sort of overshadow a little bit the story, although we won't talk directly about them, overshadow the show very much this week and, and uh, likely the next few weeks as well, of course, is the impending American election and the uh, impending Paris Climate Agreement being ratified by an additional uh, set of countries, which should, in theory, bring it up to 60 uh, signatory countries. So with those looming things, that also the the former, or, or the latter rather, putting additional emphasis on the former, mm. uh, in that case, uh, pretty much nothing we can do to stay away from politics right yes. now. Yes, and to be fair, when we aren't talking politics, we're usually talking terrible disasters. So yeah. I almost feel like, while politics may feel like a terrible disaster, it isn't actually a hurricane. It's so, but it's so consistently a disaster that's kind of more like white noise, as opposed <laughs> to the, 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 the uh, staccato of uh, natural disasters. Right. Anyway, <laughs> so I'm going to lead up. Uh, I have a segment I, I tweeted out earlier before the show. You can follow us on Twitter, by the way, at Green Majority, uh, where you would have seen if you'd already signed up this morning that I tweeted out uh, that a preview of today's show was called Dirty, Dirty Liars, Exxon mm-hmm. Edition. We'll be getting to that. Uh, of course, everybody you know, that listened to the show knew that. I'm going to provide some additional insight onto this as well uh, a little bit later in the show. But Stefan has uh, kindly offered to start us off. Yeah. Uh, thanks, Darren. I, I was joking before the show that we call this good faith, bad faith, uh, mm-hmm. because my the opening story actually i'm going to run through a couple different stories and i'll I'll sort of preview them in half a second uh but the overarching the overarching thought process here is i'm going to try i'm I'm going to presume everyone is acting in good faith uh you know no matter where you stand uh on on how we should deal with climate change uh but i'm going to presume everyone is acting in good faith and everyone understands that that, that, and everyone accepts science these are the two things i'm accepting Uh, i know that might be a reach for some people but these are the two things that my beginning is that the caveat to begin uh this piece Uh, another view of that might be Stefan. you have some experience speaking to younger school audiences and so this might be the version of the show that we would give to a younger school audience um so as not to crush their dreams before they begin sure uh although i can't necessarily promise it won't be dream crushing uh (laughs) okay so to begin uh, the, the to lay the groundwork here, I want to. There's a both an article in the Atlantic, uh, or so the New Republic, sorry, written by written by Bill McKibben, uh, of course of 350.org fame, uh, who cites a a, art, a a a not an article a a report, if you study. will, a study and a report uh, called "The Sky's the Limit" or "The Sky's Limit." Actually, it's a play in words. Well done, well done. They have a bunch of it's 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 a it's a, uh, it's a whole bunch of work. It's a collaboration uh, between Oil Oil Change International, uh, Amazon Watch, uh, APMDD. There's a long list here, including Earthworks, obviously 350.org. Uh, the Rainforest Action Network is on this list. Uh, the Indigenous Environmental Network is on this list. There's a very long list of organizations that came together to work on this study. And the study basically comes down to a couple key findings. 
uh, and and they've been reported a couple of different places. The first, and it, what Bill McKibben highlights uh, in in his New Republic article, is that one of the findings is if we're trying to stay beneath, below two degrees of global warming, uh, we cannot in any way have any more uh, fossil fuel uh, infrastructure built. Obviously, this is, on, this is on the backs of uh, of the fights in North Dakota and also on the fights here in Canada uh, and all across the world against different. You know, there's a, there's a there's currently a big fight in Germany going on against the coal against the coal mine. Um, there's one also in Newfoundland. There's, it's all over the place. These these different battles against different fossil fuel investments. And so that's the way that he that the Bloomington is taking this is that sort of this saying the new study says that we at best have to stop now. Um, but in reality, if you if you dig into the study a little bit deeper, and if you look at if you look at and there's also a, gu- a great Guardian article uh, written by uh, Carl Matheson uh, called "Existing Coal, Oil, and Gas Fields Will Blow Carbon Budget." Um, uh, that gives you a hint of what's, where this is going. Uh, that even what we have currently is not enough. Uh, is, or is not going to be doing enough, basically. Uh, so, so the key findings in this report specifically are saying that uh, the potential carbon emissions from oil, gas, and coal in the world's currently operating fields and mines would take us beyond two degrees of warming. So, so let's, let's ignore the new idea of new things. It, just what we currently have operating would take us above. Um, perhaps more shocking and more terrifying, I'm sorry, children. Uh, these, of course, are not all of the listeners, but the metaphorical children I'm speaking to and trying not to crush their souls, um, is that the reserves in currently operating oil and gas fields alone, even if we stopped coal immediately, would still take the world beyond 1.5, uh, which, of course, was what the Paris Agreement uh, had aimed as a, a, a stretch target. Um, and then... Uh, and the third finding is that uh, with a necessary decline in production over the coming decades to meet climate goals, clean energy can be scaled up at a corresponding pace, expanding the total number of energy jobs. So that's the idea here. Uh, this article is really uh, – is really a study, sorry, is really pointing out, hey, uh, we're in a worse shape than anyone is willing to admit. Um, and but there is an opportunity here to really sp- uh, to expand energy jobs actually by by taking a, you know, a Herculean effort uh, to to actually invest in clean energy something we've been saying on the show for quite some time. However, uh, so let's leave that as a as, as a as a we've now accept so that is the science uh, that and that's what science stands. Move on to let's move slightly forward into how the sort of you know the politics of climate change. Uh, and as you as you so handily uh, prefaced at the beginning of the show, the Paris Agreement is poised to come into force. Uh, we're going to see another. We're probably going to break the record, the, break the number of organizations that need to sign on, which is sixty, um, uh, which will bring it into action. Obviously, China in the United States signed on earlier, which was a big percentage of the actual uh, numbers. Uh, on on Wednesday, 31 countries formally signed up, um, including Brazil, uh, Mexico, Argentina, and Sri Lanka. Um, and the oh, and also the oil-rich United Arab Emirates ratified the deal, which is both shocking and a. Uh, Good news. Well, as, as a quick note on that particular thing, and we covered this a few weeks ago, but just to remind the listeners and any, any people that may not have caught that show, uh, Saudi Arabia is investing trillions of dollars in renewable energy. Right. And they're one of the world's largest producers of oil. I don't remember. Yeah. They may be or they're not. I don't remember the exact numbers. I think they numbers. are. Uh, but that should tell you something. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they, um, they see the writing on the wall because the, literally, I, uh, this number I am fairly confident of, somewhere in the 80% of their entire economy is based on oil. Mm-hmm. So they don't ha- they don't have t- they don't have any room for playing around. There's no they don't have any there's no escaping uh, the reality there. Uh, they're making that decision based on the best available evidence that they can find to protect the future of their country and prevent it from going from an extremely rich country, despite the fact that that wealth is held in very few people's hands, uh, to a very very poor country overnight. Mm. Uh, they're not they're not picking policy at random here. They're doing that based on the evidence. And the only reason that we're not seeing that in more countries is because they have more wiggle room more more risk uh, and there and so therefore the politics is is more uh, apt to uh, hedging bets uh, uh, uh saudi arabia does, does not have that leeway their country lives or dies on their investment uh in oil or their investment to get off of oil and i really just want to underline that that's very very important yeah 
Uh, and so currently, uh, with the 60 that are signed up, uh, that is only 47.7% of global emissions, uh, which means to actually have it ratified, we need to get up to 55% of global emissions in 55 countries. So we've passed one of the two. Um, and for those of us in Canada, it should be noted that Canada has not yet <laughs> ratified uh, the, the Paris Accord. Uh, so uh, Justin Trudeau, uh, we are waiting. <laughs> Uh, but uh, in, in, in Trudeau's defense, neither really has, neither has Germany, France, the EU, Australia, or South Korea. Uh, and so some of these are obviously – Germany especially is known for its you – know, it, besides the fact they're trying to build a massive coal plant, uh, Germany has a very interesting similar problem that we have in the tar sands as a, as a side fact. Well, and, and another, uh, another note I can't let goodbye when we were mentioning uh, Germany and the Paris Agreement as well is, of course, that Germany is next at the helm for the EU presidency. Right. Uh, and this is about to flip. So Germany is another incredibly vital player right now in uh, this whole uh, this whole deal. And they're way ahead of most people. So expect to see them sort of, you know, it, it's in the same way that when the United States was able to sort of get a hedge on HFCs, uh, which if you have not heard the whole story, go back to previous episodes. I, I've told it like 75 times. Um, as soon as an organization like a com- country has an adva- competitive advantage in this kind of industry, they will, they will push it. So expect to see Germany probably, ex- you know, despite the fact that they do have this sort of ongoing you know addiction to like a couple coal mines here and there uh expect to see some actual i expect everyone expects this thing to pass quite soon with these countries that will sign on uh and then it will be ratified so uh we have the ratification of of of, of the of the paris climate court imminent we have the science that says we have to do this thing um those two things are those are facts you know, we can we can bring on you know we we won't, but we although it'd be kind of funny if we did. We could bring on Newt Gingrich to tell us that his feelings matter just as much as facts. Uh, but those of us who live in the real world know that's not the case. Uh, and but so he, he prayed to his accountant, who told him <laughs> to invest in oil. Um, which uh, which leads uh, which leads us to the to the, to the piece that I'm trying to get to, um, which is this article from the National Observer from Bob Weber. Uh, which is an econ- which is titled "Tax is more difficult." Economists suggest regulating carbon, not just pricing it. You heard that, uh, conservatives. Uh, we are threatening now to regulate carbon. The the scariest word in the world. You know, I feel like there's you know there's there's swear words, and then there's the word regulation, uh, which is not a four letter word, but I think is equally, if not more, terrifying. It's it it is arguable though whether or not uh, uh, Republican heads explode faster. Uh, with the word regulation or the word taxes. Yeah, it's true. Despite the fact they're hypocrites on both. <laughs> yes, uh, because they want to regulate your ba- uh, bedrooms and mm-hmm. they also want to give tax breaks to the rich to raise taxes on you. Uh, so they're, they're full of it on both accounts. We're acting in but, good faith in this segment. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. The we'll next say, segment right. is, is the segment is bad faith. I'll hold my, I'll hold my comments. <laughs> um, and the article here is making the point, which, has been, which, which even uh, Barbara Gakalova uh, of, of last week pointed out that when talking about what the price in carbon needs to be, it floats between $50 a ton and $200 a ton. Um, this uh, this um, economist, Mark Jacquard, uh, from Simon Fraser, uh, basically argues that it, it has to be 200. He's on the higher end of what he thinks this needs to be. Uh, and basically he's arguing that no government will be able to pass a $200 price on carbon uh, and succeed. Uh, so we should consider regulating it instead. Uh, which I want to point out, had we had a price on carbon about you know 15 years ago, it could have been $50. Or $60. And the longer we wait on this, the higher the price has to be because we need more and more drastic reductions in carbon. Uh, and so if you're, a, if you're a conservative out there who wants climate policy, which avoids the terrifying word regulation, you better – the faster you get on this car, pricing carbon train, uh, the faster you can avoid such, such terror. Um, and so this is sort of – this, this, this comes and, – and, and what's, what's important about this is that this is a conversation about, of course, how to reduce the current carbon emissions we have in our system. Again, ignoring the, all the battles we're seeing across, across North America and across the world against new infrastructure. Um, and so at some point, I have to just find an economist who will explain to me uh, – Basically, it's just it, it. The only understanding I can get from the, from this sort of from the, like the if you are a person who still inv- wants to build more oil infrastructure, uh, you have to convince me first 
that the that the science that, that the scientists that understand this thing are are, are wrong, uh, or or that you know it, that global warming doesn't matter. You then have to convince me that the Paris Accord is a both useless and b ineffective. Uh, and then C, you have to convince me that uh, that there'll be a market for this in the next in the for another fifty years, despite all the new technologies coming on board. Despite the fact Saudi Arabia doesn't think so. Exactly. Um, and then and then on, of course later on top of all of this is the is the is the fact that you know you have these you have First Nations groups across North America signing treaties of alliance against the oil sands and new energy infrastructure because they're the people on the front lines being affected by this. So you have a you have a you have a racial justice piece that overarches an entirely uh, an entire piece that I don't understand from from the science to the public policy uh, to the economics uh, of this issue. And I'm acting in good faith. Uh, so if you are a person. Uh, who can explain to me why we should still invest in those things with those three things understood? Please email us, and I will. I because I, I, I'm honestly interested, uh, and that is. If I, I hope I didn't scare I didn't scare everyone too much with that segment. Your segment, I think, will do a much better job. Um, but it's 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 one of those things, right? It's one of those things where when you when you sit down and really look at the pieces, it gets more and more terrifying. Yeah, and in case uh, in case Ezra Levant, that uh, half melted wax statue of himself, uh, Ezra Levant, um, says, "Aha! Look at you trying to make an argument by pointing to what Saudi Arabia does. You must be in league with." Okay, hold on. My entire point around that, and the entire point of referencing to Saudi Arabia, is not to say, "Hey, they're doing something, and they're a great government that does great things. That's why we should listen to them." No, no. They're a pretty hideous government. That's my entire point. <laughs> they have absolutely no reason, no incentive, and nobody to force them to do it because it's the right thing to do. The only interest they have is their own enrichment and their own wealth. And, that's, and they've used that argument to decide to invest trillions of dollars and to publicly say we are actively trying to get off oil as the basis of our economy. Yeah. They have zero incentive to do it for any other reason other than it's financially prudent. Yeah. Zero. Well, and and, and 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 what's interesting about what's, the one thing that I guess can be pointed out about 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 their specific situation is that they actually have the they are not on four year election cycles. They're not looking out for the next four years because they don't need another. They're not trying to convince you to hire to, to elect them in four years. They're concerned about the health and safety of their of their of their of their populace and of their country uh, much further down the road. You know, if you're, if you're, if you, like, you know, it's not, it's, it's interesting about that, about the fact that, you know, um, it's one of those things where you say democracy just doesn't work. Uh, but like, it, it's interesting that with these four year or even in the Congress, two year election cycles, um, you're, you're looking at a situation which in the countries that have the ability or the la- like, again, this is not democracy is definitely the best system. <laughs> that is, I'm not, I'm not here arguing against democracy, uh, but it does, it does have this ongoing problem of being short-sighted, um, and and when you see other countries that don't, that don't, that have you know dictatorships or other things similar to dictatorships, um, they are they look longer term because they can, uh, and they have to because they'll still be in power. You know, I, I'm guarantee you if you if you put you know if you put someone's uh, like if Trudeau knew he was going to be in power for like 30 years and in 20 years he would have to be dealing with his complete failures now, I bet you he'd be have a very different tone than what than than, the, than how he's reacting currently. Yeah. Well, this uh, we're going to go to break now, but uh, this uh, in an attempt a desperate attempt to rein in my saltiness, uh, <laughs> which is a, an expression I've recently picked up from you know, from YouTubers, which I like very very much. <laughs> I very much like that expression, saltiness. Uh, uh, we'll we'll end this section. Um, uh, on on I think that note. Oh man. Okay. No. You know what? It would require me to get into our next story. Let's right. hold it there. Let's go to our music break. I will I will restrain my saltiness for a minute or two. Uh, Alex, welcome back. First of all, thanks, Darren. I'm really happy not to have to be teching my own show. I imagine. Yeah, I missed you desperately. It's hard enough <laughs> teching. I can't imagine talking at the same time. So thank you very much. Would you please kindly also introduce? I'm sure you are much better music selection than I have been. Welcome back. You're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM. I'm your host, Darren Kaster, in studio with Stefan Hostetter. And we're broadcasting live here from CIUT in Toronto. You can also listen to us live on one of our very appreciated and uh, wonderful 
both wonderful and very appreciated community sponsors and uh, radio partners all across the country now internationally as well. Not uh, to miss, of course, uh, the wonderful Rabble.ca, who also is a good uh, independent uh, media organization and is uh, – being kind enough to host our podcast there as well. The, of course, the uh, the premier, if I may put it that way, if you really just can't get enough, just can't get enough. Just if you just can't get enough, uh, <laughs> Stefan and I uh, also do a, well, and Stefan and I and whoever our guest or, or whoever's in studio that week also do a bonus show. You can listen to that on the uh, greenmajority.ca podcast or the iTunes version of the podcast as well. Sometimes it's funny. Sometimes it's news stories that we just didn't get to. Sometimes it's a combination of the two. And once we talked about Pokemon for nearly 20 minutes. Yeah. So if, if that's interesting to you, uh, <laughs> go back and check it out. Uh, well, you know, there was an ongoing joke that, that also in previous episodes, we would have our, our wonderful extra guests, uh, which, which people apparently skipped our entire show just to listen to them talk. So mm. if you want, if you go previous episodes, you can hear Deirdre <laughs> uh, go on about Pokemon for about 20 minutes. Yeah. Deirdre, uh, so there's some episodes with Speed. I'm both dearly missed as well. So let's get into uh, my salty section. So this was uh, this was a section I was titling. Okay, uh, I was inside. My salty section <laughs> is an amazing title for something. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody write that down. <laughs> <laughs> Or just tweet it at me like three days from now and I'll there laugh hysterically because I'll have forgotten by then. Right. Uh, okay. So what we're looking at here is um, I'm going to start with a story that's that's uh, going to seem for a moment slightly off topic, which uh, many of you may have seen. It was a Congress uh, calling in uh, CEO from Milan uh, for uh, cra- uh, ratcheting up the price of EpiPens. EpiPens, of course, uh, are to deal with uh, severe allergic reactions. They're a drug. I don't, I don't understand the details of it super well. I've, I thankfully, I'm not in uh, in a situation where I need to have one. Uh, but things like anaphylactic shock, etc., I believe it covers a wide range of severe allergic reactions. Uh, so, an urgent medical item. Uh, not. Uh, it's not face cream. Uh, it's not. Uh, it's not even like you know antifungal spray for your athlete's foot. This is this is a serious uh, serious issue and uh, can can involve saving somebody's life in many cases. Um, the reason that Heather Bresch was called before the House Committee uh, was due to a six hundred approximately percent increase uh, of the EpiPen. Um, and uh, it was uh, very widely publicized uh, and compared, in fact, I think quite fairly to the other gentleman, uh, Dirtbag, uh, whose name is escaping me at the moment. But the guy who who's like a software billionaire and he bought out a medical company and then cranked all the, you know. Or one specific drug by like to like One specific drug. And, it's like a and then he bought the Wu-Tang album. Yeah. Okay, uh, sure. Literally just to spite people. <laughs> um, so, you know, we'll, we'll save my railing about the uh, the the. Uh, the evils of being absurdly wealthy, just generally later. I will, I will give, I will give that man a pass if he lets us play the Wu Tang album. <laughs> if he brings it to us and we can play it, I will, I will give him a pass. All right, Steph, you heard it here first. <laughs> so, although we probably can't play it, but still, no, probably not. But anyway, uh, so the the point here, of course, is they're going on, and uh, so you know, what the reason that they were the, the reason that they were uh, shocked and chagrined that this company would raise this. Of course, I mean, to to your average person. Um, who you know doesn't read necessarily a ton of news, uh, maybe doesn't listen to the show, uh, would go, yeah, that's terrible. Good, yeah. See, there's the government going after these dirty, dirty companies that are just ripping off people. And, and others might say, well, now come on, this is how the market works, and everything she was doing was legal, and blah 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 blah. Okay, but here's uh, oh, I, Martin Shirelli, by the way. Uh, was go. the guy, the hedge mon- uh, manager who jacked up a HIV-related drug by five thousand percent. Uh, and then bought the Wu Tang. And then bought the Wu Tang album. Uh, so the point here is, of course, is that there, th- this was getting some headlines and people were outraged and how dare you and blah, 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 blah. The reason I'm starting with the story before we move into Exxon was that um, the, the feigned surprise, uh, this is in fact how we've designed our system. The, uh, the CEO here, Heather Bresch, is doing precisely what the economic system and all of the laws around corporations are designed to not just encourage them to do, but in many cases requires them to do, which is a legal responsibility to maximize profit to shareholders. Now, there is not an office and body that goes around and looks through every CEO's decisions and says, was there anything you possibly could have done to do it? Of course not. What does happen, though, is that shareholders can uh, – uh, I don't know if it's, it would be a lawsuit in this case, probably a lawsuit, uh, some sort of legal action, uh, if if an obvious opportunity to make money or if a very bad decision was made by a CEO uh, to um, uh, to get some redress. Perhaps they get reimbursed. Perhaps they can simply force the CEO to step down. Uh, but there is redress uh, if shareholders... Uh, shareholders complain and say, hey, how come you're not maximizing my, my return on investment here? Um, 
And so this is this is the system that we've created. So she had an incentive. In fact, you might say she had a job requirement to make as much money as possible for the company. Now, some other things in there, of course, is that they used a bunch of that money to just give themselves all raises. That's a different issue. So the reason I'm relating this to the Exxon story is, you know, when we're, we've been covering uh, Exxon new uh, for quite some time, this is, of course, the release that Exxon has known that climate change was dangerous and had internal documents showing that their own scientists confirmed that there was a relationship between carbon and dioxide and uh, climate change uh, for about 40 years. Uh, in fact, not only did they confirm that there was, in fact, to the best of their knowledge, uh, a link between those two things, but that this would be an impending danger for the future of human civilization. Now, what's really interesting here, of course, is that um, Imperial Oil, who's uh, an uh, a affiliate of ExxonMobil, um, uh, released a, a bunch of documents as part of a donation to a uh, museum. Uh, they apparently did not review all these documents or didn't think anyone else would ever actually read them. Uh, thanks, Smog Blog, for, hmm. uh, for doing that, uh, because they reveal some pretty hideous things, uh, including the fact that they called their own, uh, their own uh, 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 talk about uh, uh, climate change action as being like antisocial and even the things that they were doing about, uh, oh, well, you know, but it's probably it, it's certainly not real and it is uh, it's terrible. So the, the documents uh, were saying things like pollution is everybody's uh, business. Uh, that there was, in fact, a confirmed link between carbon dioxide as a pollutant and linking it to climate change. And uh, that now they're, what they're saying is that they're saying uh, they're, in, in light of these things, Exxon is saying that uh, – you know, here's a quote um, by um, – uh, a VP of Public Affairs. Uh, the allegations are based on false premise that ExxonMobil reached definitive conclusions about anthropogenic climate change before the world's experts and before the science itself had matured, and then withheld it from the broader scientific community. Uh, such a claim is preposterous. It assumes that the expertise of a handful of Exxon scientists somehow exceeded the accumulated knowledge of the global scientific community at the time, and that Exxon scientists somehow were able to reach a definitive conclusion before the science had developed. Now, if that's all you know about that issue, you might go, huh, fair point. <laughs> Except we know a little bit more about the situation, which is that that's funny uh, because when you guys were coming out saying there absolutely isn't a link between carbon dioxide, you weren't saying, but we're really, really not sure and we really need to wait for the scientists. <laughs> you sounded pretty damn sure. And so the fact that if, if the point of view of ExxonMobil had been, hey um, – you know, there's there's possibly concern here, but it hasn't been confirmed. Uh, we're uh, we're going interested in await you know the consensus of science, and we're going to uh, adapt our business model to possibly adapt on, on that contingency. Uh, but we need to know because our business model depends on it. So we're going to actively participate with scientists to help reach a conclusion as soon as possible. Then they would be absolutely scot free. In fact, they would be my freaking hero. They didn't do that. All of their internal reviews, despite whether or not you think it's fair to say that they couldn't have uh, – that, that their own internal reviews uh, weren't good, well, you didn't you, – you, the response of your internal review was to completely ignore it and then go out in public and insist that it was factually the opposite. This is the reason they're liars. This is the reason why it's not just politics. This is the reason why it's not just uh, a matter of perspective. No, you had ev – every evidence that you had said – uh, evidence is leading this way, but let's say, you know, it's not absolutely confirmed. Fair point. You have internal science that says, as far as we can tell, this is pretty open and shut, but we're not the experts. So what do the experts say? Well, the information is leading that way and evidence is mounting on a daily basis. But okay, fine, we're not sure. What should we go to say to the public? That all these things are absolutely not true and that the scientists are dead wrong and there is no link. This is why these people belong in jail. And the thing is... These are the types of actions that a corporation that, is, that has immense amount of power and immense amount of resources, the ability to have their own science departments, you know, outside of uh, – outside, the fact that they even had the resources to have a science department to look into this that doesn't in any way directly affect their business model. They just have money lying around for scientists to go investigate whether or not climate change was real. Uh, but yet they need $30 billion from the Canadian government, hundreds of billions of dollars, trillions of dollars globally for the industry and taxpayer subsidies to then go out and say the exact opposite of every single piece of – even if you want to give them the benefit of the doubt and say as yet unconfirmed scientific evidence is factually incorrect is what a business does when it has virtually no oversight, way more power than the regulators that they're supposed to be looking after them. The ability in the US to basically legally bribe politicians uh, and they're still getting public subsidies. 
This is what they do. But, so here's the thing. We either need to jail all these people immediately and or uh, we need to make it so that there is an uh, uh, there has to be some other thing other than maximizing profit because uh, when when your only requirement is to maximize profit as long as it stays within the law the only ability you have is to change that and say okay well now our entire economic system is based on this return on investment if you took away the legal responsibility to maximize profit the entire global market would would collapse I agree with you so here's what we do what did Stefan talk about in the beginning. The regulation. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> regulation. You can say you have a legal responsibility to maximize profit unless dot, dot, dot. Now we can have a conversation about what those dot, dot, dots might be. But the current system incentivizes corruption. It incentivizes lies. And all of that corruption and all those lies, when we're talking about global companies with hundreds of trillions of dollars in, in, in assets uh, who have the ability to legally bribe politicians in the most powerful countries in the world – don't come to me and act like you're surprised when the CEO of an EpiPen company charges uh, people life-saving drugs 600% increase so that she can have a second boat. Well, and, and so what's interesting about, about all of that is, is, is exactly as you put it, what's interesting is where exactly the – when exactly it tips from being perfectly legal to being, to being not, right? Um, in that, you know, my, like – you can have Cocoa Puff cereal tell you that it's part of a balanced breakfast, and that's fine. Uh, you know, despite the fact that the balance is the rest of it, and the Cocoa Puffs is the part that should yeah, probably there, not there, be a part you, of that it. That scale of justice. On one side, there's the Cocoa Puffs, <laughs> and on other side, there's like forty pounds of vegetables. It's balanced. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it's a balanced breakfast. Um, and and it, but it's that it's that same sort of you know there's 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 no science behind the fact that Cocoa Puffs should be a part of your breakfast. Uh, in fact, there's, pro- there's very strong science saying that their Cocoa Puffs should not be a part of your breakfast. Uh, and yet there's you know and yet that you, you, if you turn on it, if you turn on the next commercial for Cocoa Puffs, it will end its thing with it being a part of a balanced breakfast. So here's an idea I just came up with. I sorry yeah. to interrupt you, but I just came up with an idea because I, I like to give people examples. It's very easy to make to, for me to stand here, and I'm you know I'm kind of good at it. Make these grandiose sounding declarations, mm-hmm. but how? Where does the rubber meet the road? Great, you just gave me a perfect example. Here's what we could do: we could change the regulation on the side of the box for Cocoa Puffs to instead of just saying, okay, well, you can't lie to people, but that doesn't mean you have to tell the truth. You just have to not lie. Right. right. So it's like it's like an opt in versus opt out. Stefan, tell me uh, tell me uh, when you want me to give five dollars or, you know, uh, uh, I'm going to go and spend all my money and you like you stop me. So like those are two different situations. Sorry, that was a really bad example <laughs> I just came up with in the moment. Uh, but the point is here is what you could do is you could say, OK, um, here's here the, the you know, the, the nutritional uh, regulations decide here's what a balanced diet is. We define our terms mm. now. How much food do you need to see? How many calories do you need to consume? And what portion of it would be your product to meet this specifically defined balanced breakfast? And you would find out, and on the side of the Cocoa Puff cereal, now instead of being able to say part of a balanced breakfast, they would say part of a balanced breakfast as long as you eat this amount of other things. Or and they would Cocoa be out of Puffs. business immediately. Well, and, and, and so, that's, so that's the thing, right, is that we have these, we have these advertising standards, but they're very – they're loose, uh, in many many ways, and and whenever you see sort of people, and that's what you see the fights against, all, you know, against proper labeling or anything like that, is that uh, is that the more you expect, and you're seeing it more and more, you're you're seeing calories end up on more and more menus and more and more and, and breakdowns on more and more menus and stuff like that. So we are getting better at getting the consumer some information that is not decided on by you know by the by the manufacturer um and it's, it's definitely one of those things where uh, we're slowly getting better at being like okay maybe people deserve to know what they're buying um and and putting that expectation on the people selling the thing to let them know uh in food it's, we're very very good about that in food we're getting better you know like there's still you know there's the conversation about gmo labeling there's a whole conversation about you know where organic standards sh- exist and don't exist and where that sort of stuff goes but at least you know the break the breakdown of ingredients is on you know almost all food uh the break and all those sort of things are coming into place uh and so we're we are to some extent we are telling the people who are buying food what they are getting um in a way that we don't for a lot of other things uh, and and so all of this comes down to empower, letting the consumer know what they're actually getting. Uh, and you know, Exxon spent 40 years telling people that what they were getting was magic. 
just just pure pure magic in 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 dark at a dark substance that you can just flow anywhere, put in your car, and then your car goes. And nothing. And there's no reason to be concerned about it. It's it's just it's just great pixie dust. Yeah, and there's like there are so there are so few to maybe no things that don't have an externality of some nature. Uh, and so to and so for forty years uh, and even to this day, oil is being treated as this as this magic existence which doesn't have any externalities because uh, you can't see it. You know, we spent we spent the last forty years telling everyone to recycle things because it wouldn't end up in the landfill because you could see that. You can't see the externalities in oil, and so everyone was like, "Well, I guess it doesn't exist." I guess they don't. Exist. This is great. Yeah. It's the same thing, you know, and, and, and that kind of that out of sight, out of mind thing exists everywhere. Um, but it's interesting how we, we we fail to regulate the ones that are that are, that are invisible and are, are at least you know better. Uh, it's not great at, at, at beginning to force these sort of externalities that we can see get more into our lives. Yeah. So the the only ray of hope I have for you this week in my in my dirty dirty liar section <laughs> is that. Uh, uh, th- this sort of outrage is is actually starting to penetrate into the mainstream uh, media, and and I, and I have I have a, a, a comment about that uh, as well. Um, which is, so uh, there's a story here which I'm surprised to see in the Wall Street Journal. Uh, which you know the the tone they take in the article isn't great, but at least they're covering it. Which is that the SEC in the in the U.S. Uh, Securities Exchange Commission. Mm-hmm. Uh, which regulates uh, business and trading, uh, is probing Exxon currently over accounting uh, for climate change because they're the only oil company that did not adjust their... Uh, I, I, I don't have the, the specific details memorized in front of me here, but uh, it was either about their, their future projected profits or the value of their company uh, never adjusted it, but they're the only oil company that did not adjust it uh, as information about climate change came out. And, which, and so everybody else uh, com- uh, lost a combined value. Again, I'm not certain if it's uh, of their company value or of their projected profits profits um, of $50 billion, there's never been any change from Exxon. And so they're now investigating them as actually lying to their shareholders, too, oh, which is really, really interesting. So the fact that that's happening, A, so SEC is actually doing something, A, B, Wall Street Journal is covering it. These things happen when people pay attention. We don't, the, the, the newspapers don't report stuff and then people get excited about it. I'm sorry to inform you that's not the way it works anymore. The way it works anymore is that shows like ours, people like D Smog Blog, the people uh, over at uh, National Observer who have been kicking butt recently with uh, Mike D'Souza, um, absolutely. This sort of investigative uh, reporting, we don't do investigative journalism, we're commentators, but the, this sort of independent media that's actually going out and going after these people directly, which gets people excited, getting people asking questions, getting people like that woman who confronted uh, Justin Trudeau this yeah. last week um, to go and say, hey, what's going on over here? And then they go, oh, people want to read about this. Like, that's all they're thinking about. I'm not, I'm not even accusing them of being evil or like in bed with Exxon, although there probably is some of that. <laughs> um, it's largely just that they will print what they think people want to read. And if they think Miley Cyrus is all people want to read about, that's all they're going to write about. If they want to hear stories about Trump, what he did, and that's Trump is the only word that's going to get an article sold, then all they're going to write about is Trump. That's their only incentive. They have no incentive at all to actually inform people. But this works to our advantage if we can get people asking questions outside of these organizations to demand answers to these questions, then the establishment media will, to some degree, uh, actually do it. And that will help get these sort of non-activists on board and acting questions. And this is how we get real change. So the fact that, despite the fact that it's hypocritical as hell, uh, the EpiPen story, the Exxon story, and the SEC are all good signs that public awareness is increasing to the point that the major media is taking notice of these issues that the rest of us have been complaining about for years, and maybe we'll actually get some results here. The very last thing I want to say in this section as well was uh, coming back to, I, I have a better example for you ah. uh, than my really failed uh, <laughs> other uh, argument. So uh, here's, a, here's a difference between an opt-in and an opt-out type system. Legally speaking, okay, you're not allowed to lie in advertising. All Trump has to do to put in front of every one of his ludicrous statements to get away with it as far as the opt-out system is concerned, i.e. that you're not allowed to lie, which requires you to prove that someone has lied, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, So they get the benefit of the gray area. Uh, as well as uh, as well as the other side is all he has to do is put in front of every one of his lunatic statements. Uh, somebody the other day said, or, or no, his favorite actually is a lot of people are saying. A lot of people are saying. A Thank lot you. of people are saying I am the greatest candidate a of lot all of, time. A lot of people, a lot are, of saying people are saying that. Uh, <laughs> a lot of people are saying. Now you can't prove he's lying. That person. It's impossible to prove that nobody ever said that to him. Therefore, he gets to get away with saying whatever he wants. Mm. Whereas if we have an opt in system where you have to confirm that your statements are true or you don't get to say them, all of a sudden 
the only word ever comes out of his mouth. It goes from 50% of the words out of his mouth to the only word he's going to ever say out of his mouth is fantastic. (laughs) Because that's the only thing, without context, that's going to be great. It's going to be great. It's going to be great. I can't say anything else because I'd have to confirm it was true, but it's going to be great. It's going to be fabulous. (laughs) Although then you have to prove it's going to be great. And I, I don't think it's going to be great. But in at fe- some future date, at least. Ah, uh, fair enough. Right? Eventually, right. it will be great. It's going to be great. Yeah, sure. <laughs> One day there will be war. <gasps> I'm Nostradamus. I predicted the future. Okay, let's uh, let's end this very, very salty section. We're going to yeah. come back and uh, and talk a little bit about uh, some First Nation stories, uh, including a, uh, a uh, precedent-setting, I think, uh, continent-wide uh, alliance between uh, First Nations uh, all across North America uh, to uh, to support each other in blocking oil sands expansion. Uh, once again, doing the heavy lifting for many of the rest of us here, uh, as well as a, a study uh, confirming uh, 90% of Grassy Narrows residents show mercury poisoning signs, according to researchers. We'll be back right after the break with that as well. You're listening to The Green Majority. I'm Darren Kaster sitting here with Stefan Hostetter. And now we're going to hear from Alex, who's going to tell us what our second and final music break is. Thanks, Darren. My eyes are stinging from all the salt in the air right now. <laughs> Welcome back. You're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM. I'm your host, Darren Kaster, sitting in studio with Stefan Hostetter, uh, who's going to uh, uh, lead us off in our final section for this week's Green Majority. Yeah, uh, just a, it's, it's a bit of a – it ties pretty well into the, the sort of conversation about uh, about – Clean capitalism, which is the probably the most ridiculous way to describe what your last segment is about, um, uh, but at least the way that capitalism or or that, that that our current system is actually moving towards embracing the idea of uh, of talking about externalities and climate change, uh, which is that the amalgamated bank, uh, which is the largest only largest union owned bank and one of the only unionized banks in the United States. Uh, to be honest, I didn't even know there was a union owned bank in the United States. Nor did I. Uh, so I learned something already. Uh, has made the decision to uh, divest its four billion dollars uh, American of commercial assets from fossil fuels holdings, um, and it's and it arguing that it's supported by new legal research presented on Wednesday uh, by the global investment consultant Mercer and the Center for International Environmental Law. Uh, so, what's interesting about this, of course, is that. Their argument, uh, because part of this, of course, is as a bank, you have to try to be making you know, you're maximizing profits in the same sort of way, uh, which means that you have to find a way to um, a way to, a, a way to argue that this is you basically have to make the legal case that yes, we're allowed to do this. Mm. Um, and so, what's interesting is that this basically is arguing that fiduciaries uh, who have the responsibility for all of their clients to maximize their portfolios uh, have to start paying attention to climate change. And and start treating uh, risk fossil fuels as as high or, or some some fossil holdings as high risk um, because of course of the incoming you know the carbon bubble and, and everything like that uh, the idea that that at some point we'll, we'll realize that oil companies are massively over, over overly priced and therefore they'll come down uh, and so what's interesting about this research is it's arguing that you that it is their duty uh, as as fiduciaries um, which is a specific term that means they have to maximize your money. Uh, to pay attention to climate change, uh, and to and therefore that is why the reducing pulling it pulling their investment out of fossil fuels makes sense uh, is important. Uh, it's a similar to that story a couple weeks ago about um, about how solar companies are now finding ways to get uh, insured for their how much money they'll make. This is another one of those sort of establishment moves, uh, very very establishment. This is you know this is a bank. It, it might be union bank, but it's still a bank, uh, and these are fiduciaries uh, making this decision. Uh, it sort of shows that you know, little by little, maybe too late, we're getting somewhere. Um, and so, uh, so just like that's a, it's a, it just as a fact that like again, this is not the same as corporations being able to do this. Uh, because but it's a but it's at least an important understanding that if you know if banks if more banks start actually uh, taking this understanding and making it their fiduciary policy to start worrying about this sort of thing, that's when you'll see you know Exxon's price starts dropping mm. uh, because they're not taking this because they're not because they're not taking it seriously. Uh, but anyways, so that's the uh, so that's that first story. But, but you sort of teased a couple different stories uh, about about um, with 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 how First Nations and Aboriginal people are responding to these. Once again, being on the front lines of these sort of things. Yeah. So just uh, really quickly on that last thing before we get to that as well. Is like this is what we're ta- when we keep talking about things like a carbon bubble mm-hmm. uh, is similar to the housing market bubble. This is sort of what we're talking about. So slowly, major institutions are starting uh, to move across. Yes. You know, first it's a, a union-owned bank still with billions of dollars in investments. Uh, now we're seeing you know. 
know, major countries, Saudi Arabia, we're seeing uh, uh, more and more uh, investment, more and more regulation, more and more taxes. And the thing is, a lot of this is going to be incremental and because a lot of it is being very, very cautious because uh, if you move too quickly ahead of the curve, you know, science and reality aside, just talking about the finances, uh, if you move too quickly ahead of the curve, and, and uh, Tim Nash has talked about this mm-hmm. on the program before as well, um, you expose yourself to undue amount of risk and you could potentially like, you know, and not even like, well, you know, you know, you could say, well, toughen up and do it. Well, no, because if you're a player, if, you, if you're, say, a smaller player and you get out ahead of the curve, even if you're right, ultimately, and you, you sort of overextend yourself and your, uh, your institution collapses or your investments collapse, now, you, now you're not out of that market. You're no longer a player and you're no longer part of that sort of forward momentum. Well, so, and this example, the, the, a good example of that is, is during the housing crisis, the number of people who – or the people who actually caught on to it so early – uh, that they'd almost bankrupt themselves by by hedging by, by shorting the market before the market actually crashed. They ended up making tons of money, but they were you know there was there was you know they were getting closer and closer and closer to actually bankrupting themselves mm. because they were so because they saw it two years out. Yeah. Uh, and and they were so ahead of the market that the that they yeah exactly if they you know if 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 this worst case scenario he would have they could have ended up you know becoming bankrupt before the the crash, housing crash and then they would have been like and even after it happened they would have been done it wouldn't matter yeah and the, the other sort of important part and the reason I wanted to, to mention that quickly before we moved on was that you know but what happens these are the dynamics of a bubble is you start to see these stress marks and slowly people you know it's like a predator in a pond and all the little fish start slowly you know slowly start going and then all of a sudden there's you know sort of a group thing takes over and. Okay, no, we better run. Um, and so, you know, we're seeing slow and slow and slow, but the hammer's going to drop. And it might be too late. It might not be too late. Well, I mean, too late is super relative because <laughs> we're already experiencing super problems. We're already committed to a certain amount of Warming. climate change yeah. no matter what we do. Um, but financially speaking, um, th- there is going to be – I don't. I can't tell you when it's going to be, but there will be a giant lurch. And the bottom is going to drop completely out of that market. And everybody with money that still has money in the, these uh, carbon-intensive projects uh, is going to get really screwed real fast. Yeah. And I can't tell you when it's going to be. Maybe it's going to be 15 years from now. Maybe maybe most of the people will have gotten out of that market. It's possible that they could soften it. But it is going to happen. Mm-hmm. And that is inevitable. So uh, before we uh, – so uh, uh, being done with that financial section for a little bit, let's do a little bit of science. And the science we're going to talk about right now, of course, is that uh, recent research uh, has in fact confirmed that uh, 90% of Grassy Narrows residents show signs of mercury poisoning. Um, Grassy Narrows First Nation, of course, has been in the news quite a bit over the while because there's been quite a pressure from, uh, uh, of course, the First Nations uh, – groups that are uh, on that land as well as uh, a lot of uh, other groups that have sort of been speaking up on their behalf, trying to pressure the government to clean up a lot of this uh, poisoning. But in many cases, the damage has very much already been done. Uh, there is an entire generation of people living in this uh, region who've, who of which this is their land. Before you get off on that, we'll just move to throw do a throwback to an old episode of ours. Um, you know, on their homes, which has been uh, poisoning um, since the 70s. And so what they found... Uh, was that nine out of ten people uh, show signs of mercury poisoning, which leads to severe development uh, uh, issues. Uh, it affects uh, everything from tests, criminality, uh, all sorts of things. It just generally just, just it screws with the brain, uh, prevents it from developing uh, properly, and it's an extremely uh, not only is it a severely extreme problem, uh, extreme problem, uh, it's one that there's basically nothing you can do about once the damage has been done besides preventing future damage. And what we've seen from the government, unfortunately, has been quite an embarrassing and uh, uh, just hideous amount of feet dragging on, well, you know, maybe it'll be fine or maybe it'll disperse. And yes, it's going to be very, very expensive. And maybe if we just wait a little longer, it will be okay. The problem is now is that the damage has already been done. And this is, unfortunately, is on a long list of issues where um, First Nations people in this country and in many countries, we're talking about Canada right now, um, have simply been put at the end of the train as far as, you know, well, just, you know, too bad. It's not enough problem. And and what it really comes down to, and I'm I'm sorry to say, is that, you know, this is one of those things where, again, I I might guess at this time, is it Keith Stewart? Uh, Yes. The the famous reference that we've made many, many times where Keith Stewart, who's the former Greenpeace? Uh, Yes. I'm on fire today. Elegant. was saying, you know, he went into a meeting with a politician uh, many, many years ago uh, to talk about climate change policy and laid out the case. And the politician said, wow, you know, I, I, I was a little bit informed about this before. I'm now extremely informed. Uh, you've absolutely convinced me. Uh, this is a serious problem. I completely agree with you. There's nothing I can do for you. <laughs> and Keith went, what? And he said, well, it's a, it's a simple matter of votes. I have a job. Um, this, is, this is a solution in need of a problem in that 
for me politically. Uh, I have nothing to gain and everything to lose from supporting you. So, you know, go change the public's mind, make them demand this change, and then, boom, I'm going to be right there with you. Uh, but until then, there's nothing I can do for you. And unfortunately, this is, uh, in my opinion, and I, th- I, I assume Stefan would agree, feel free not to, uh, that this is a very huge impact on what's been happening with the First Nations groups, which is that uh, you're not a significant part of our voting block. We don't count on you. It's very, it, It's been historically very easy to just ignore this community in general. And so we have nothing to gain from helping you. And and that seems really hideous. And I'm afraid it might, in fact, just be that hideous. It well, might simply be politics. Well, I was going to say, I'd go beyond that. I would say that the, pro- the, the, the that it's it's a it's a larger piece of environmental justice and, 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 and racial justice in that Canada was committing a cultural genocide in the last hundred years uh, on these people. This kind of ignoring of their issues shouldn't be, like, is not surprising because there are people alive who, who there are people like, who have their, like, like, who experienced this kind of these kind of disastrous uh, attempts to, to quote unquote assimilate them, um, and so the idea that they're not going to pay attention to these to, to these issues in this sort of way shouldn't be surprising. Uh, and as far as you know, trying to you know rec- reconcile for some of these failures, of the, uh, these failures is a very pathetic term for that for the catastrophic lack of action we've or or in or even actions we put on these people um, is ridiculous. Uh, so, like, the first thing we can do is at least start respecting them as human beings and, and cleaning these sort of things up, let alone the larger piece of actually, you know, re- reconciling the horrors of the past we've already committed. Yeah. And so we're out of time for the last story, but the, the headline will say it enough as well that despite this treatment, despite all the years and years of neglect and, and hateful racism, uh, First Nations group across North America are signing a treaty alliance to support each other to stop the oil sands, to do the heavy lifting for many of the rest of us to stop climate change from happening by stopping oil development. Thank you to them. Hats off to the First Nations signatories of this agreement. That is all the time we have for this week's show. If you'd like to hear more, we'll be back with a brief bonus show if you're listening to the iTunes version of the or the GreenMajority.ca version of the podcast. If not, have a good week. Sorry you missed out, but we'll see you next week. And that's it for the regular program. We're now on to the bonus show. A quick note, however, I, I, in the sake of transparency uh, transparency and honesty, uh, I actually removed a very, very tiny, tiny, about like five-second clip from the end of the program today. Uh, you would have noticed if you'd listened to the live broadcast and are coming back. Uh, the reason is is because uh, Stefan misspoke and uh, said that uh, residential schools had been ended uh, 30 or 40 years ago in Canada. This, of course, is not true. The uh, The most recent closing of residential schools was shamefully as late as 19. I'm fairly certain that's accurate. Um, But the reason I removed it was just that we didn't get a deluge of email saying that that was wrong when we already knew it was wrong. Uh, But again, for the sake of transparency, uh, we did in fact say it. We were wrong and we took it back. So you've been corrected and and hopefully everybody's satisfied with our apology. Uh, Without further uh, delay, though, however, we get into a very interesting conversation about how to solve the world coming up next on the Green Majority Bonus Show. Enjoy. And we're live on the bonus show edition of the Green Majority Program. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Alex is joining us today. Thank you for joining us, Alex. Thank you for having me, Darren. And uh, I should put on my earphones so I can hear you. That makes sense. Hey, there you are. Or alternatively, we could just talk and then you could just guess what we're saying and <laughs> respond you know, by how animated our hands are. That'll be, that'll be the uh, uh, 550th anniversary show. <laughs> we're going like this. <laughs> Uh, so what I wanted to what I want to talk about. So I I, I enjoy my little uh, my little rants, um, but you know we. It's we good s- that you do. Yeah. <laughs> well, see, that was my first question. <laughs> uh, I enjoy doing it uh, because it's a it's a bit of cathartic release for me. Hmm. Um, but you know, and we occasionally get feedback on them, but we I don't get a ton of response. And and frequently, uh, often I take a, an entire section such that uh, there's not an awful uh, lot of debate time uh, just due to the constraints of the show, uh, even amongst us. Hmm. Uh, so I wanted to uh, to perhaps give uh, Stefan you a chance to respond and Alex uh, a chance to uh to sort of mull over the idea of just like so essentially uh, you know i won't i won't go through some of my proposed solutions again uh a it would take too long and b we've already heard it uh people just listen to it on the show so the general idea of the problem though i just wanted to sort of like jam on that topic for a minute about you know their their apparent problem of the fact that you know as identified on the program that the essentially the leading responsibility for a business is to maximize value for shareholders that's one of their pretty much only uh, overarching, uh, you know, as long as it stays within the law is, of course, the caveat. And that's, of course, the thing that people will bring back to you and say, well, of course, now they can't violate the law. And I was like, well, good, because otherwise there'd be slavery. <laughs> um, 
It sort of already is. Uh, arguably. There's the, there, we currently, as a quick aside, this has nothing to do with environment, but there's currently ongoing the largest prison strike ever. The prisoners the are on strike. It's about time. Uh, uh, which, you know, this is, you know, I, I will not get into a corporate, uh, a private prisons rant, uh, but there's, it's, it's, it's ludicrous. It's terrifying. And it is as, it is, it is modern slavery in almost every word. Uh, and I'll like, it'll, like, yes, they are paying them somewhere, somewhere around seven cents on the hour. Uh, there's a couple places where they get slightly more, depending on what the work they're doing is. But when you are when you are arresting someone for a for a possession charge that wouldn't be that wouldn't be legal in other states, putting them in jail for 15 years and forcing them to pay for seven cents an hour, we can have a conversation about how wh- the splitting you're splitting hairs and whether or not that is actually slavery. Yeah. Aside, there is a private prison which makes people pick cotton. That is actually a thing that currently exists. Aside, sorry. All right. Uh, no, I mean, yeah. Well, no, Stefan, it's indentured servitude. It's not the same. Well, of course. Uh, <laughs> so the uh, the idea there being, you know, and and uh, and I think so, you know, we need some. My philosophy, of course, uh, is that uh, governments should regulate and run. You know, we can input all sorts of like performance targets, and and we should be pegging uh, civil servants uh, pay either to an index that uh, is like the basic minimum for for anybody, uh, or that it's uh, directly, uh, you know, uh, uh, pegged to performance. You know, there is definitely some efficiency issues uh, with some government programs, although not all. And it is absolutely not true that uh, that companies are always or even often more efficient than government programs. But it can happen. That is a downside. Uh, of the public side of it, uh, but essentially that you know addressing some of those problems would lead to uh, that you know governments should run at a no in a no profit structure things that are required for life. So we should not be privatizing our water. We should not be privatizing our power. We should not be privatizing our health care. These are requirements. If you want to privatize sports cars, if you want to privatize baseball games, sorry, Stefan. Um, they are privatized. Yeah, but as far as like how you categorize things, anything that's... Oh, you don't think baseball is, is required for, for, for life? <laughs> I'm out. So it's uh yeah no I don't. Uh so like that's sort of where my head's at. But the, but those sorts of things like there's there's a very hard to say well how do we get to that, right? So uh in a in a more practical sense um what what could we do and uh, to to address some of these uh problems and of course and the corporation should have a requirement outside of just solely maximizing profit but of course if we if we told them they didn't have to maximize profit the entire you know economic system would collapse. Uh, which apparently is what half of the Americans voting for Trump think is a good thing to do. But anyway, <laughs> that's the side point. Uh, so, yes, we have to have that. There has to be that. that That's required for sort of a stable market, at least in the current form of our market. Uh, but on its own, it's provided for mostly evil, uh, as I would summarize it. So uh, what could we do? What should we do? Does something need to be done? Uh, what What types of things could we see to address this problem, which seems to give a free pass uh, to the rich and powerful? Yeah. Uh, so, so in our in our fifty minute bonus show, we've decided to solve the one of the greatest questions of the twentieth and nineteenth century. You have four minutes. Go. Oh, great, excellent. Um, so obviously, uh, this is the question, right? How do you do this? Uh, and there's an argue, There's so many different like. There's the one argument that ends up being uh, a whole breakdown of whether of the of the. All you have to do is price externalities. You, when you bring in externalities, then the market will solve itself. Uh, which point you brings in the questions? Okay, well, at, at what is the value of a human life? Uh, which or, or what is the value of of, bio, of biology generally? What is the value of of of, of biodiversity? Uh, and and yes, if we make those very those values expensive, then theoretically the market could solve the problem. Um, and that is a re- and that is a that is a p- thought process to have. Yet we're nowhere close to doing that at all. Uh, the second option, of course, was, would be to would be to do some sort of would be to, to regulate these sort of things and, as much as possible, and, and you know decide what. It, and that's sort of what we've decided on so far uh, is to attempt to regulate these things to protect them. Um, not successfully working that much in many places, uh, but you know there are some minor successes on that front too. Uh, and the third option is to either do some sort of hybrid uh, or or come up with. Uh, an entirely different understanding of how of how our system works, 
Uh, and so, and so I mentioned before, before we jumped into this thing, B Corps are a good example of that, uh, of B Corps, uh, especially in the States, are pushing for a third designation. Uh, instead of just being a charity and a, and a for-profit business, you could be this third designation, which is a for-profit business, but has other mandates that basically lets them not have to be trying to do, oh, like, lets them, lets them basically prioritize other things as well as making a profit. Um, there's, you know, there's the B corps are often contentious in some ways because the question is exactly how do you how, like again it all comes down to measuring and how you figure this out right and to some extent it comes down to how you're understanding these things work. Um, what I think one of these three things will work. I think you're probably going to end up with some sort of like. I'm not the most optimistic person that will figure it out, really. But I think that I, I think fundamentally, I think you, you're going to see a hodgepodge of these three different things until you get an actual cultural shift of understanding from humans outward. You know, if we as humans understood a thought of the earth first before uh, before making money, then then we would come up with solutions that wouldn't have these sort of problems. Uh, right, but we've been told we've been fighting the Earth for you know for our enti- human's entire history. You know, there's three types of stories: man versus man, man versus nature, or man versus himself. Um, and so, like, we've been telling this man versus nature story since we were born. Uh, so it's not surprising that we are still seeing ourselves first and nature second. If we can make that switch, uh, then maybe we actually start coming up with solutions that aren't a hodgepodge of sort of like half half-assed ideas. Mm-hmm. Uh, Alex, as an artist and someone who's uh, by definition chosen not to maximize personal profit at all other costs, uh, what are your <laughs> artists slam? Take that, artists! <laughs> no, that that's actually coming from me. That's a giant compliment, uh, and I respect you, sir. Uh, what what are your thoughts? And obviously not, obviously not. I'm trying to put you on the spot to dig into like you know fiduciary responsibility and economic policy, but just as far as like sort of cultural awareness as sort of an artist do you think people are ready not to maximize profit and that you know is there is do you see a possibility for like a cultural shift sort of idea here uh or uh do you sort of agree with my saltiness that potentially we just need you know an, an iron dictator that happens to also be a huge lefty liberal hippie <laughs> uh that's a lot of questions in one question <laughs> but um I like I don't I don't think that individuals by nature want to maximize profit. I, like I know I know for myself like I've chosen uh, other priorities other than other than making as much money as I possibly can in my career. Mind you, I do worry a lot about money because of that, and <laughs> and where where the money is going to come from to keep uh, allowing me to do what I do. Um, so. I think that I think that regulation is is super important. I've been listening to uh, a lot of podcasts and doing some reading to try to understand American politics better because the election, like, there's so much uh, bombardment of of election news on all sides, and and I just it it just seems like I was I was it struck me the other day. It just seems like their system of uh, individual liberty, like above all else, doesn't work. Uh, in a society it works for the individual maybe especially the individual that gets lucky and and gets ahead in life but uh, as a society it doesn't allow for everybody to be prosperous and harmonious with their environment and it, it in fact requires a large portion of the of the population to be in poverty for this for some to have much others must have nothing yes so it, yeah it, it, it requires the thing which it claims to solve or it requires the problem which it claims to solve to exist. So, so I'm I'm really on board with regulation, and I I haven't given a lot of thought to regulatory politics, uh, but but I think carbon pricing is a great place to start, and then uh, and then like limits on uh, limits on production, and maybe even like a focus away from um, from maximizing profit, like maybe maximizing profit is the problem and and maybe uh like chasing profit but not maximizing is is more the the uh, solution i've heard people say things like well we need to create a system by which you know it maximizes welfare which sounds great but the problem is it's not nearly as easy to quantify as profit um, so yeah, I mean, I think there's a there's I think there's a language problem. I'm I'm much more in favor, and it much more appeals to my palate, if you will, um, a sort of 
a shift away from sort of the emphasis on the financials as well. The, the unfortunate thing is that all the people in power and, and a lot of other people grudgingly uh, just don't find that sort of thing to be realistic. And I'm, I'm not here to say that that is or isn't realistic, but uh, I, I, I agree, unfortunately, due to that sort of cultural inertia, if nothing else, uh, that a more regulatory sort of firm-handed approach is probably more likely to succeed. So, I mean, one of the things I came up with, even just while Stefan was talking, was that, you know, a way, and like no politician on the planet would have the cojones to propose such a plan. Uh, but, I mean, there are simple solutions. They're just not politically viable. So here is one such not politically viable but totally would work idea uh, would be, you know, corporate taxes are being lowered and lowered and lowered, Um uh, despite the fact that Trump is a million times worse, even the Clintons now, uh, Bill Clinton was on TV yesterday hinting, don't worry, uh, financial industry, we're going to lower, you know, corporations, we're going to lower your taxes even more. Uh, again, which is just, you know, lower taxes, lower taxes, lower taxes, uh, is that I propose a uh, 95% corporate tax rate. Now, you, whoa, whoa, you just collapsed the entire economic system. No, no, hold on, hold, hold. 95% corporate tax rate, but uh, we will give massive like we're talking like 10 or 15 or 20 percent reductions uh for meeting each of several goals right so we could say uh you're going to get a 20 percent corporate tax rate billions of dollars from any kind of companies uh if you uh are able to do this or able to do that are able to make your business carbon neutral are able to you know and we set out all these targets and we give we assign each one a massive tax rebate so we're starting at the baseline is that essentially so we still have that single legal requirement we leave in place that single legal requirement to maximize profit but we recreate a system uh that is fairly easy to uh, uh create and outline uh of a number of priorities and these can be shifting over time and different governments can adjust them as they go uh where basically you can't be in business without meeting any of these because you have to give up almost all of your money in taxes forcing them to uh adhere to some of them but they get to choose which ones they prioritize how many of them they go after uh, is a way to measure balance and effectiveness, right? So an oil company might say, okay, well, for us to be profitable, we now have to, and to avoid to, we need to pick up many of these things. So to be carbon neutral, that's not going to happen. But maybe we, you know, maybe we can't be carbon neutral, but maybe we meet some carbon targets and we dump billions of dollars into childcare or something like that, right? Or whatever it might be. And uh, Nestle might go out and, you know, say, well, okay, well, we're going to, we're going to be carbon neutral. We're going to do all this, all these other things. So they can work out for themselves what the solution is going to be for themselves in any particular thing and we re and we keep this system that they're used to which is maximize profit but it's now maximize profit within these confines uh in a way that forces them to do something but it's up to them what and we give them a list of ideas basically of here's some of the things that you could do that would allow us to be profitable and it's an, and what it would do is it would create a system where a company may, and it's going to be easier for some industries than others but a system by which a company could possibly pay zero tax by being incredibly incredibly beneficial to society um and i think that would be great would any politician in the world do it nope mm -hmm. but but, it's an, but it would work that's that's kind of the system that already, like, to some extent, that's what's already trying to be invest, incentivized with, with, with the way the charity system has worked out, right? You, 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 you put X amount of money into charity uh, and you get that much of a tax receipt or, or a solid percentage of that is a tax receipt. Uh, so to some extent, there's, there's precedent uh, and are, that, that, that to some extent exists as it is now. Of course, the problem then is, you know, what do you talk about charities? And the, the United States tax code just makes so little sense to anybody that, that – that it's just it's 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 designed to be gamed. It's that's it. It is designed to be gamed so that because the rich people can understand can afford the people to, to work around all the systems and the poor people don't. Uh, you know, like it's 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 created a system so that you know Mitt Romney can pay less tax than a than a you know than his own secretary. Than his own, exactly. Uh, you know, and and that's just and it's because of the way the system is set up and despite how much money he's making. So you know, uh, I'm. Uh, I, I'm skeptical of anything working, to be honest. Uh, except for like you know, there's so many people out there trying doing. There's so many people out there trying to do better, uh, and trying to make it a better place. That maybe slowly but surely will win. All right. Well, uh, Alex is signaling me he has to run. I, we're at 15 minutes. I think that's a good place to stop. Let's call it there. Congratulations. We just solved the world. Suck it, world. <laughs> <laughs> Have a good week, folks. We'll see you all real soon.